Chapter Five, Part Two of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. Chapter Five, Part Two. All the farmers being by this time jogging homewards, there was nobody in the sanded parlour of the tavern where he had left the horse. So he had his little table drawn out close before the fire, and fell to work upon a well-cooked steak and smoking hot potatoes, with a strong appreciation of their excellence, and a very keen sense of enjoyment. Beside him, too, there stood a jug of most stupendous Wiltshire beer, and the effect of the whole was so transcendent that he was obliged every now and then to lay down his knife and fork, rub his hands, and think about it. By the time the cheese and celery came, Mr. Pinch had taken a book out of his pocket, and could afford to trifle with the viands, now eating a little, now drinking a little, now reading a little, and now stopping to wonder what sort of a young man the new pupil would turn out to be. He had passed from this latter theme, and was deep in his book again, when the door opened, and another guest came in, bringing with him such a quantity of cold air that he positively seemed at first to put the fire out. "'Very hard frost to-night, sir,' said the newcomer, courteously acknowledging Mr. Pinch's withdrawal of the little table that he might have place. "'Don't disturb yourself, I beg.' Though he said this with a vast amount of consideration for Mr. Pinch's comfort, he dragged one of the great leather-bottomed chairs to the very centre of the hearth notwithstanding, and sat down in front of the fire with a foot on each hob. "'My feet are quite numbed. Ah! Bitter cold, to be sure!' "'You have been in the air some considerable time, I dare say,' said Mr. Pinch. "'All day. Outside a coach, too.' "'That accounts for his making the room so cool,' thought Mr. Pinch. "'Poor fellow, how thoroughly chilled he must be!' The stranger became thoughtful likewise, and sat for five or ten minutes looking at the fire in silence. At length he rose, and divested himself of his shawl and greatcoat, which, far different from Mr. Pinch's, was a very warm and thick one. But he was not a whit more conversational out of his greatcoat than in it, for he sat down again in the same place and attitude, and leaning back in his chair began to bite his nails.' He was young, one-and-twenty, perhaps, and handsome, with a keen dark eye and a quickness of look and manner which made Tom sensible of a great contrast in his own bearing, and caused him to feel even more shy than usual. There was a clock in the room which the stranger often turned to look at. Tom made frequent reference to it also, partly from a nervous sympathy with its taciturn companion, and partly because the new pupil was to inquire for him at half after six, and the hands were getting on towards that hour. Whenever the stranger caught him looking at this clock, a kind of confusion came upon Tom, as if he had been found out in something, and it was a perception of his uneasiness which caused the younger man to say, perhaps with a smile, "'We both appear to be rather particular about the time. The fact is, I have an engagement to meet a gentleman here.' "'So have I,' said Mr. Pinch. "'At half-past six, said the stranger.' "'At half-past six, said Tom, in the very same breath, whereupon the other looked at him with some surprise. "'The young gentleman, I expect,' remarked Tom timidly, "'was to inquire at that time for a person by the name of Pinch. 
dear me cried the other jumping up and i have been keeping the fire from you all this while i had no idea you were mr pinch i am the mr martin for whom you were to inquire pray excuse me how do you do oh do draw nearer pray thank you said tom thank you i am not at all cold and you are and we have a cold ride before us well if you wish it i will i i am very glad said tom smiling with an embarrassed frankness peculiarly his and which was as plainly a confession of his own imperfections and an appeal to the kindness of the person he addressed as if he had drawn one up in simple language and committed it to paper i am very glad indeed that you turn out to be the party i expected i was thinking but a minute ago that i could wish him to be like you i am very glad to hear it returned martin shaking hands with him again for i assure you i was thinking there could be no such luck as mr pinch's turning out like you no really said tom with great pleasure are you serious upon my word i am replied his new acquaintance you and i will get on excellently well i know which it's no small relief to me to feel for to tell you the truth i am not at all the sort of fellow who could get on with everybody and that's the point on which i had the greatest doubts but they're quite relieved now do me the favour to ring the bell will you mr pinch rose and complied with great alacrity the handle hung just over Martin's head as he warmed himself, and listened with a smiling face to what his friend went on to say. It was, "'If you like punch, you'll allow me to order a glass apiece, as hot as it can be made, that we may usher in our friendship in a becoming manner. To let you into a secret, Mr. Pinch, I never was so much in want of something warm and cheering in my life, but I didn't like to run the chance of being found drinking it without knowing what kind of person you were.' for first impressions, you know, often go a long way, and last a long time. Mr. Pinch assented, and the punch was ordered. In due course it came, hot and strong. After drinking to each other in the steaming mixture, they became quite confidential. "'I'm a sort of relation of Pecksniff's, you know,' said the young man. "'Indeed!' cried Mr. Pinch. "'Yes, my grandfather is his cousin, so he's kith and kin to me somehow, if you can make that out. I can't. "'Then Martin is your Christian name,' said Mr. Pinch thoughtfully. "'Oh, of course it is,' returned his friend. "'I wish it was my surname, for my own is not a very pretty one, "'and it takes a long time to sign. "'Chuzzlewood is my name.' "'Dear me!' cried Mr. Pinch, with an involuntary start. "'You're not surprised at my having two names, I suppose,' returned the other, "'setting his glass to his lips. "'Most people have.' "'Oh, no,' said Mr. Pinch, "'not at all.' "'Oh, dear, no. Well—' And then, remembering that Mr. Pecksniff had privately cautioned him to say nothing in reference to the old gentleman of the same name who had lodged at the Dragon, but to reserve all mention of that person for him, he had no better means of hiding his confusion than by raising his own glass to his mouth. They looked at each other out of their respective tumblers for a few seconds, and then put them down empty. "'I told them in the stable to be ready for us ten minutes ago,' said Mr. Pinch, glancing at the clock again. "'Shall we go?' "'If you please,' returned the other. "'Would you like to drive?' said Mr. Pinch, his whole face beaming with the consciousness of the splendour of his offer. "'You shall, if you wish.' "'Why, that depends, Mr. Pinch,' said Martin, laughing, "'upon what sort of a horse you have, because if he's a bad one, I would rather keep my hands warm by holding them comfortably in my greatcoat pockets.' He appeared to think this such a good joke that Mr. Pinch was quite sure it must be a capital one, 
Accordingly he laughed, too, and was fully persuaded that he enjoyed it very much. Then he settled his bill, and Mr. Chuzzlewit paid for the punch, and having wrapped themselves up to the extent of their respective means, they went out together to the front door, where Mr. Pecksniff's property stopped the way. "'I won't drive. Thank you, Mr. Pinch,' said Martin, getting into the sitter's place. "'By the by, there's a box of mine. Can we manage to take it?' "'Oh, certainly,' said Tom. "'Put it in, Dick, anywhere.' It was not precisely of that convenient size which would admit of its being squeezed into any odd corner, but Dick the hostler got it in somehow, and Mr. Chuzzlewit helped him. It was all on Mr. Pinch's side, and Mr. Chuzzlewit said he was very much afraid it would encumber him, to which Tom said, "'Not at all,' though it forced him into such an awkward position that he had much ado to see anything but his own knees. But it is an ill wind that blows nobody any good, and the wisdom of the saying was verified in this instance, for the cold air came from Mr. Pinch's side of the carriage, and by interposing a perfect wall of box and man between it and the new pupil, he shielded that young gentleman effectually, which was a great comfort. It was a clear evening with a bright moon. The whole landscape was silvered by its light and by the hoar-frost, and everything looked exquisitely beautiful. At first the great serenity and peace through which they travelled disposed them both to silence, but in a very short time the punch within them and the healthful air without made them loquacious, and they talked incessantly. When they were half-way home, and stopped to give the horse some water, Martin, who was very generous with his money, ordered another glass of punch which they drank between them, and which had not the effect of making them less conversational than before. Their principal topic of discourse was naturally Mr. Pecksniff and his family, of whom, and of the great obligations they had heaped upon him, Tom Pinch, with the tears standing in his eyes, drew such a picture as would have inclined any one of common feeling almost to revere them, and of which Mr. Pecksniff had not the slightest foresight or preconceived idea, or he certainly, being very humble, would not have sent Tom Pinch to bring the pupil home. In this way they went on, and on, and on, in the language of the story-books, until at last the village lights appeared before them, and the church spire cast a long reflection on the graveyard grass, as if it were a dial." alas, the truest in the world, marking whatever light shone out of heaven the flight of days and weeks and years by some new shadow on that solemn ground. "'A pretty church,' said Martin, observing that his companion slackened the slack pace of the horse as they approached. "'Is it not?' cried Tom, with great pride. "'There's the sweetest little organ there you ever heard. I play it for them.' "'Indeed,' said Martin." "'It is hardly worth the trouble, I should think. "'What do you get for that now?' "'Nothing,' answered Tom. "'Well,' returned his friend, "'you are a very strange fellow.' "'To which remark there succeeded a brief silence. "'When I say nothing,' observed Mr. Pinch cheerfully, "'I am wrong, and don't say what I mean, "'because I get a great deal of pleasure from it, "'and the means of passing some of the happiest hours I know. "'It led to something else the other day, "'but you will not care to hear about that, I dare say.' "'Oh, yes, I shall. What?' "'It led to my seeing,' said Tom, in a lower voice, "'one of the loveliest and most beautiful faces you can possibly picture to yourself.' "'And yet I am able to picture a beautiful one,' said his friend thoughtfully, "'or should be, if I have any memory.' "'She came,' said Tom, laying his hand upon the other's arm, "'for the first time, very early in the morning, when it was hardly light, 
and when I saw her over my shoulder, standing just within the porch, I turned quite cold, almost believing her to be a spirit. A moment's reflection got the better of that, of course, and fortunately it came to my relief so soon that I didn't leave off playing. Why fortunately? Why, because she stood there listening. I had my spectacles on, and saw her through the chinks in the curtains as plainly as I see you, and she was beautiful. After a while she glided off, and I continued to play until she was out of hearing. Why did you do that? Don't you see, responded Tom, because she might suppose I hadn't seen her, and might return. And did she? Certainly she did, next morning and next evening too, but always when there were no people about, and always alone. I rose earlier and sat there later, that when she came she might find the church door open and the organ playing, and might not be disappointed. She strolled that way for some days, and always stayed to listen. But she is gone now, and of all unlikely things in this wide world it is perhaps the most improbable that I shall ever look upon her face again. You don't know anything more about her? No. And you never followed her when she went away? "'Why should I distress her by doing that?' said Tom Pinch. "'Is it likely that she wanted my company? "'She came to hear the organ, not to see me. "'And would you have had me scare her from a place she seemed to grow quite fond of? "'Now heaven bless her!' cried Tom. "'To have given her but a minute's pleasure every day, "'I would have gone on playing the organ at those times until I was an old man, "'quite contented if she sometimes thought of a poor fellow like me as a part of the music.' and more than recompensed if she ever mixed me up with anything she liked as well as she liked that. The new pupil was clearly very much amazed by Mr. Pinch's weakness, and would probably have told him so and given him some good advice, but for their opportune arrival at Mr. Pecksniff's door, the front door this time, on account of the occasion being one of ceremony and rejoicing. The same man was in waiting for the horse, who had been adjured by Mr. Pinch in the morning, not to yield to his rabid desire to start, and after delivering the animal into his charge, and beseeching Mr. Chuzzlewit in a whisper, never to reveal a syllable of what he had just told him in the fullness of his heart, Tom led the pupil in for instant presentation. Mr. Pecksniff had clearly not expected them for hours to come, for he was surrounded by open books, and was glancing from volume to volume with a black lead pencil in his mouth, and a pair of compasses in his hand, at a vast number of mathematical diagrams, of such extraordinary shapes that they looked like designs for fireworks. Neither had Miss Charity expected them, for she was busied with a capacious wicker basket before her, in making impracticable nightcaps for the poor. Neither had Miss Mercy expected them, for she was sitting upon her stool, tying on the, oh, good gracious, the petticoat of a large doll that she was dressing for a neighbor's child, really quite a grown-up doll, which made it more confusing, and had its little bonnet dangling by the ribbon from one of her fair curls, to which she had fastened it, lest it should be lost or sat upon. It would be difficult, if not impossible, to conceive a family so thoroughly taken by surprise as the Pecksniffs were on this occasion. "'Bless my life!' said Mr. Pecksniff, looking up, and gradually exchanging his abstracted face for one of joyful recognition. "'Here already! Martin, my dear boy, I am delighted to welcome you to my poor house!' With this kind greeting Mr. Pecksniff fairly took him to his arms, and patted him several times upon the back with his right hand the while, as if to express that his feelings during the embrace were too much for utterance. But here 
he said, recovering, are my daughters, Martin, my two only children, whom, if you ever saw them, you have not beheld. Ah, these sad family divisions, since you were infants together. Nay, my dears, why blush at being detected in your everyday pursuits? We had prepared to give you the reception of a visitor, Martin, in our little room of state, said Mr. Pecksniff, smiling. But I like this better. I like this better. O oh, blessed star of innocence, wherever you may be, how did you glitter in your home of ether when the two Miss Pecksniffs put forth each her lily hand and gave the same with mantling cheeks to Martin? How did you twinkle, as if fluttering with sympathy, when Mercy, reminded of the bonnet in her hair, hid her fair face and turned her head aside, the while her gentle sister plucked it out and smote her with a sister's soft reproof upon her buxom shoulder? "'And how,' said Mr. Pecksniff, turning round after the contemplation of these passages, and taking Mr. Pinch in a friendly manner by the elbow, "'how has our friend used you, Martin?' "'Very well indeed, sir. We are on the best terms, I assure you.' "'Old Tom Pinch,' said Mr. Pecksniff, looking on him with affectionate sadness. "'Ah, it seems but yesterday that Thomas was a boy fresh from a scholastic course. Yet years have passed, I think, since Thomas Pinch and I first walked the world together.' Mr. Pinch could say nothing. He was too much moved, but he pressed his master's hand and tried to thank him. "'And Thomas Pinch and I,' said Mr. Pecksniff in a deeper voice, "'will walk it yet in mutual faithfulness and friendship, and if it comes to pass that either of us be run over in any of those busy crossings which divide the streets of life, the other will convey him to the hospital in hope and sit beside his bed in bounty.' "'Well, well, well,' he added in a happier tone, as he shook Mr. Pinch's elbow hard. "'No more of this. Martin, my dear friend, that you may be at home within these walls, let me show you how we live and where. Come.' With that he took up a lighted candle, and, attended by his young relative, prepared to leave the room. At the door he stopped. "'You'll bear us company, Tom Pinch?' "'Aye, cheerfully, though it had been to death, would Tom have followed him.' "'Glad to lay down his life for such a man.' "'This,' said Mr. Pecksniff, opening the door of an opposite parlour, "'is the little room of state I mentioned to you. "'My girls have pride in it, Martin. "'This,' opening another door, "'is the little chamber in which my works, "'slight things at best, have been concocted. "'Portrait of myself by Spiller, bust by Spoker. "'The latter is considered a good likeness. "'I seem to recognise something about the left-hand corner of the nose myself.' Martin thought it was very like, but scarcely intellectual enough. Mr. Pecksniff observed that the same fault had been found with it before. It was remarkable it should have struck his young relation, too. He was glad to see he had an eye for art. "'Various books you observe,' said Mr. Pecksniff, waving his hand towards the wall, connected with our pursuit. "'I have scribbled myself, but have not yet published. Be careful how you come upstairs.' This, opening another door, is my chamber. I read here when the family suppose I have retired to rest. Sometimes I injure my health rather more than I can quite justify to myself by doing so, but art is long and time is short. Every facility you see for jotting down crude notions, even here. These latter words were explained by his pointing to a small round table on which were a lamp, diverse sheets of paper, a piece of India rubber, and a case of instruments, all put ready, in case an architectural idea should come into Mr. Pecksniff's head in the night. 
in which event he would instantly leap out of bed and fix it forever. Mr. Pecksniff opened another door on the same floor and shut it again, all at once, as if it were a blue chamber. But before he had well done so, he looked smilingly round and said, "'Why not?' Martin couldn't say why not, because he didn't know anything at all about it. So Mr. Pecksniff answered himself by throwing open the door and saying, "'My daughter's room.' A poor first floor to us, but a bower to them. Very neat, very airy. Plants, you observe, hyacinths. Books again, birds. These birds, by the by, comprised, in all, one staggering old sparrow without a tail, which had been borrowed expressly from the kitchen. Such trifles as girls love are here, nothing more. Those who seek heartless splendor would seek here in vain. With that he led them to the floor above. This, said Mr. Pecksniff, throwing wide the door of the memorable two-pair front, is a room where some talent has been developed, I believe. This is a room in which an idea for a steeple occurred to me that I may one day give to the world. We work here, my dear Martin. Some architects have been bred in this room. A few, I think, Mr. Pinch. Tom fully assented, and what is more, fully believed it. "'You see,' said Mr. Pecksniff, passing the candle rapidly from roll to roll of paper, "'some traces of our doings here. "'Salisbury Cathedral from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west, from the southeast, from the north-west, "'a bridge, an almshouse, a jail, a church, a powder magazine, a wine-cellar, a portico, a summer-house, an ice-house, Plans, elevations, sections, every kind of thing. And this, he added, having by this time reached another large chamber on the same story, with four little beds in it, this is your room, of which Mr. Pinch here is the quiet sharer. A southern aspect, a charming prospect. Mr. Pinch's little library, you perceive, everything agreeable and appropriate. If there is any additional comfort you would desire to have here at any time, pray mention it. "'Even to strangers, far less to you, my dear Martin. "'There is no restriction on that point.' "'It was undoubtedly true, and may be stated in corroboration of Mr. Pecksniff, "'that any pupil had the most liberal permission to mention anything in this way "'that suggested itself to his fancy. "'Some young gentleman had gone on mentioning the very same thing for five years "'without ever being stopped. "'The domestic assistants, said Mr. Pecksniff, sleep above, and that is all. After which, and listening complacently as he went to the encomiums passed by his young friend on the arrangements generally, he led the way to the parlour again. Here a great change had taken place, for festive preparations on a rather extensive scale were already completed, and the two Miss Pecksniffs were awaiting their return with hospitable looks. There were two bottles of currant wine, white and red, a dish of sandwiches, very long and very slim, another of apples, another of captain's biscuits, which are always a moist and jovial sort of viand, a plate of oranges, cut up small and gritty, with powdered sugar, and a highly geological home-made cake. The magnitude of these preparations quite took away Tom Pinch's breath, for though the new pupils were usually let down softly, as one may say, particularly in the wine department, which had so many stages of declension that sometimes a young gentleman was a whole fortnight in getting to the pump, Still, this was a banquet, a sort of Lord Mayor's feast in private life, a something to think of and hold on by afterwards. 
To this entertainment, which apart from its own intrinsic merits had the additional choice quality that it was in strict keeping with the night, being both light and cool, Mr. Pecksniff besought the company to do full justice. "'Martin,' he said, "'will seat himself between you two, my dears, and Mr. Pinch will come by me. Let us drink to our new inmate, and may we be happy together.' "'Martin, my dear friend, my love to you. "'Mr. Pinch, if you spare the bottle, we shall quarrel.' "'And trying, in his regard for the feelings of the rest, "'to look as if the wine were not acid and didn't make him wink, "'Mr. Pecksniff did honour to his own toast. "'This,' he said, in allusion to the party, not the wine, "'is a mingling that repays one for much disappointment and vexation. "'Let us be merry.' "'Here he took a captain's biscuit.' It is a poor heart that never rejoices, and our hearts are not poor, no. With such stimulants to merriment did he beguile the time and do the honours of the table, while Mr. Pinch, perhaps to assure himself that what he saw and heard was holiday reality, and not a charming dream, ate of everything, and in particular disposed of the slim sandwiches to a surprising extent. Nor was he stinted in his draughts of wine, but on the contrary, remembering Mr. Pecksniff's speech, attacked the bottle with such vigour that every time he filled his glass anew, Miss Charity, despite her amiable resolves, could not repress a fixed and stony glare, as if her eyes had rested on a ghost. Mr. Pecksniff also became thoughtful at those moments, not to say dejected, but as he knew the vintage, it is very likely he may have been speculating on the probable condition of Mr. Pinch upon the morrow, and discussing within himself the best remedies for colic. Martin and the young ladies were excellent friends already, and compared recollections of their childish days to their mutual liveliness and entertainment. Miss Mercy laughed immensely at everything that was said, and sometimes, after glancing at the happy face of Mr. Pinch, was seized with such fits of mirth as brought her to the very confines of hysterics. But for these bursts of gaiety her sister, in her better sense, reproved her, observing, in an angry whisper, that it was far from being a theme for jest, and that she had no patience with the creature, though it generally ended in her laughing too, but much more moderately, and saying that indeed it was a little too ridiculous and intolerable to be serious about. At length it became high time to remember the first clause of that great discovery made by the ancient philosopher for securing health, riches, and wisdom, the infallibility of which has been for generations verified by the enormous fortunes constantly amassed by chimney-sweepers and other persons who get up early and go to bed betimes. The young ladies accordingly rose, and having taken leave of Mr. Chuzzlewit with much sweetness, and of their father with much duty, and of Mr. Pinch with much condescension, retired to their bower. Mr. Pecksniff insisted on accompanying his young friend upstairs for personal superintendence of his comforts, and taking him by the arm, conducted him once more to his bedroom, followed by Mr. Pinch, who bore the light. "'Mr. Pinch,' said Pecksniff, seating himself with folded arms on one of the spare beds, "'I don't see any snuffers in that candlestick. Will you oblige me by going down and asking for a pair?' Mr. Pinch, only too happy to be useful, went off directly. "'You will excuse Thomas Pinch's want of polish, Martin,' said Mr. Pecksniff, with a smile of patronage and pity, as soon as he had left the room. "'He means well. He is a very good fellow, sir.' "'Oh, yes,' said Mr. Pecksniff. "'Yes, Thomas Pinch means well. He is very grateful. I have never regretted having befriended Thomas Pinch.' "'I should think you never would, sir.' 
"'No,' said Mr. Pecksniff. "'No, I hope not. "'Poor fellow, he is always disposed to do his best, but he is not gifted. "'You will make him useful to you, Martin, if you please. "'If Thomas has a fault, it is that he is sometimes a little apt to forget his position. "'But that is soon checked. "'Worthy soul, you will find him easy to manage. "'Good night. "'Good night, sir.' By this time Mr. Pinch had returned with the snuffers. "'And good-night to you, Mr. Pinch,' said Pecksniff, "'and sound sleep to you both. Bless you, bless you.' Invoking this benediction on the heads of his young friends with great fervour, he withdrew to his own room, while they, being tired, soon fell asleep. If Martin dreamed at all, some clue to the matter of his visions may possibly be gathered from the after-pages of this history.' Those of Thomas Pinch were all of holidays, church organs, and seraphic Pecksniffs. It was some time before Mr. Pecksniff dreamed at all, or even sought his pillow, as he sat for full two hours before the fire in his own chamber, looking at the coals and thinking deeply. But he, too, slept and dreamed at last. Thus, in the quiet hours of the night, one house shuts in as many incoherent and incongruous fancies as a madman's head. End of chapter 5